Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from the Capital Region campus of Clarkson University in Schenectady, New York. I am a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship here at Clarkson University. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoy our podcast. The two of us want to take our lessons learned over three decades plus as entrepreneurs, inventors, investors, managers, and professors, uh, and share our network of interesting friends, former students, business partners, and others we've met along the way uh, in our life's journey to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and most importantly, people that take unconventional paths to find happiness and success at work and in life. Before we get to today's guest, just a quick thank you to our sponsors, Clarkson University and the Munster University of Applied Sciences. Today's guest is Ewan Poon, a very successful entrepreneur who started and recently sold Spin. It's a great story of how he attended Cornell University at the age of 15, stayed there for a law degree, and then went to work for one of the top New York City law firms. From the law firm, he took a sabbatical and launched his entrepreneurial career. Okay, let's get right to the interview, Bela, with Ewan Poon, founder of Spin. But just a quick note, this was recorded over Skype, so the sound quality is less than perfect. We hope you'll bear with us. Hello, listeners. Uh, Bela Musitz here uh, with a great guest today for our podcast. Uh, A really, really interesting background and story and a very, very successful entrepreneur. Uh, Graduated uh, uh, from Cornell uh, Law at the age of 22, uh, enrolled there, uh, and got accepted at the age of 15. So a really special individual here. And uh, my guest today is Ewan Poon. And uh, Ewan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. It's our pleasure. So uh, let me let me start off uh, by asking you a question, Ewan. If you're at a uh, social event, a cocktail party or a networking event, and you walk up to up to someone to introduce yourself, uh, what do you say? Uh, these days, it's it's the founder by Sam founder of Spin, the uh, the electric scooter company, and the conversation usually kind of goes on from there because uh, these scooters have basically taken on a life of their own, and everyone seems to either know them, have an opinion of them, or just generally have, you know, have heard of them. Yes. So uh, for those people who may not know what a scooter is and what Spin does, can you, uh, can you expand on that a little bit for us, please? Sure. So, so Spin, so our, our mission is to solve last mile mobility, and we do that by deploying a fleet of electric scooters. These are, uh, if, if you guys are familiar with uh, the Razor scooters of old, these are the same L-shaped devices, essentially skateboards with stems on them, um, but but powered by electric motors so that they zip along at a nice speed of 15 miles an hour. Uh, And we deploy fleets of them in cities and campuses that you can rent um, for a pretty small amount. It's a dollar to start and 15 cents a minute. And uh, you can zip around town, and when you're done, you basically park them on the sidewalk or in a designated parking area, and you're done your trip. So everything is done via... A mobile phone, and this this phenomenon has been uh, been sweeping the nation. Really, starting in Santa Monica by another competitor, we started in San Francisco, um, and uh, now there there are a few companies that are taking this into cities and really helping people get around their downtown areas. Wow! So that sounds uh, live, uh, living where I live. Uh, it's a little remote. Uh, we we don't have those types <laughs> yeah. of challenges. Uh, <laughs> But uh, it sounds really interesting. And uh, before we dive into that a little bit more, because we're going to want to talk about the challenges and sort of, uh, but first I want to think about sort of a little bit more about your background. So uh, where were you born? I was born in Singapore, uh, pretty far out there. Okay, yeah. Island. And and, uh, sort of a, uh, and then you ended up in Canada, is that right? I did, actually. At the age of 10, um, family moved to Vancouver, um, and uh, I guess that's where I ended up picking up the hockey bug, and uh, was there for high school before uh, heading up to the cold upstate New York, 
uh, for, for college and law school. Yes, and so you, you went to Cornell University and at the age of 15. So tell me a little bit about that experience. It was fun. I, I think that um, I had, in, in moving from uh, Singapore to Vancouver and changing different educational systems, I ended up uh, skipping over a couple of grades. Um, but I, I found I, I picked up programming at an early age as well, and, and had a found it had a decent knack for it. So uh, bumped along very quickly, and was pretty excited to get to the next phase of education, and, and got into CS at uh, Cornell. Cornell was a was a fun experience. Um, I learned learned a lot as with any kind of had a pretty normal still uh, college experience, uh, and and learned a lot, and and also had a great time in law school, uh, kind of getting a different experience. Yeah, so I think about, you know, graduating uh, with a degree in com- computer science, and and then most people would not think, okay, the next step for me is I'm going to go to law school. So um, share with us sort of a little bit of your thinking process there. Huh. Uh, the year was 2003 and a half. I guess I, did, I graduated in December 2003, which... Uh, you might recall at the time when Facebook started rolling out to college campuses. And uh, at that point, I think I'd been programming, you know, since the coding since the age of 10 or so, uh, which in retrospect from 10 to 18 didn't seem like a long time, but for me it was an eternity. And, uh, you know, I some, so looking at some different options, including potentially, you know, applying for a job at Vanda Mason, you know, Facebook or some of the tech startups back in the day, uh, it didn't feel like I, I wanted to jump into engineering as a profession, but rather I enjoyed creating things for myself. Um, the I was almost stuck in that. I think it was a bit of sort of decision paralysis, not not knowing what to start. And uh, at the time, my sister had gone to law school and was a pretty successful lawyer herself. It seemed like a, a really interesting opportunity to learn uh, a different. Uh, pop into a different field and uh, gain an understanding of different perspective on the world. And um, it was also, you know, another good reason to stay at school for another three years, which honestly wasn't that bad of a time. Yes, yes. So is there a sort of a uh, history of, of entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial activities uh, in your family? Uh, there is, actually. I mean, um Singapore is a pretty entrepreneurial country. If you know a little bit of the history and the culture there, it's a essentially a, a country full of uh, people who you know, trade. It's a trading port historically, and then my dad was in the trading business, uh, having formed, starting as started as an accountant and started his and grew a, a pretty successful trading company of all sorts of things, including plastics and uh, who knows what uh, between. Uh, factories in China, North America, and the rest of Southeast Asia. And um, I've always grown up in that, that environment. Um, and personally as well, I, I think that from pretty pretty young age, I was making websites and uh, trying to figure out how to you know, earn money online. And um, very much akin to many of the, the, the entrepreneurs you, you might meet today who grew up in the late 90s and had access to the internet and um, had the exposure there. It's really fascinating. I mean, the internet itself opened the doors for uh, a lot of uh, anyone really to, to, to be an entrepreneur and get going. You have all the tools at your disposal from education to uh, payment systems to products and contacts. So it's quite, uh, uh, in, I think my first online business was back in like 98 or so. Yeah, it is. It is. That's an excellent point because it is remarkable how the internet uh, has made the world flat, as a very famous mm-hmm. person once said. But also, yeah. it has really taken down barriers and made it so much easier for individuals to uh, start a business or to get into business or test the waters for a business. Um, and and if you think about it, you know, it, it, and it makes it. It also makes it possible because you have access. To such a large potential market, it makes it possible to have very small niche businesses, which 40 years ago was impossible. 
because their chances were there wasn't enough people within you know 300 miles of where you were <laughs> who were interested in that. Yep. But now you only need to find a thousand people throughout the world that are interested in that, and the chances of that are pretty good. So it is a, it certainly is a game changing development and or invention um, that has uh, I think forever changed the world. Yeah, and um, one of the most the fascinating things I've started in recent years. Uh, and along the way, sometimes in between uh, different points in my career, I pick up some, some small side projects. And, and one, one thing that I kind of uh, took a look briefly at was uh, selling on Amazon. And um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the fulfillment by Amazon system. Speaking of empowering entrepreneurs, um, today selling on Amazon, you could start selling without ever having touched the product. Um, you can line up um, a supplier on Alibaba. Um, of whatever you feel like, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in my case, I kind of experimented with several things, including tea, product. Uh, this was back in the, the kind of the hustling days. Um, and uh, you can you can get them to ship direct to Amazon. Amazon handles all the fulfillment, and you can start an e-commerce business with um, without any, uh, any physical inventory or having owned a, a warehouse of any sort. Yeah, and and thus uh, very low capital required to get started. Yeah, um, which is you know one of those barriers that that keep a lot of people out of trying entrepreneurial activities or starting businesses is oftentimes there's a high capital cost. But as you just stated, we we yeah. now have mechanisms that fundamentally for very little capital you can you can get going and test the waters and see if your business idea works. And I think that's one of the most remarkable things that we have in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, online, I mean, starting things online. And my, my first thing I was mentioning back in uh, 98 or so was a, a website that uh, I actually built to fulfill a, a need, which is a, a pretty funny need in, in, in retrospect, actually. And when I was growing up, I was fascinated by um, computer gaming, as, as most uh, male teens are, and, and wanted access to the latest uh, computer hardware. Uh, my parents were not always supportive of, of you know, uh, investing uh, capital into buying gaming equipment. And I uh, decided to, to step around this by creating a, a website that would review computer hardware. Um, I would say purportedly, but not purportedly. I mean, we, we actually did reviews and, and actually guarded the following. And that led to me uh, being able to secure relationships with top manufacturers, including Microsoft and, and uh, 3DFX and ATI and all these big gaming companies, uh, who would then ship me uh, computer hardware uh, for free, essentially to to review. So that was uh, that was a fun. Um, I've always kind of tried to think about ways to to, to essentially get what I want, and uh, that entrepreneurship is is usually a way to do that. Yes, yes, it sure is. It's uh, often. Oftentimes, people say that one of the definitions of entrepreneurship is is the ability to accomplish things without the required resources. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. So, after law school, <clears throat> you went to work uh, mm-hmm. at a pretty uh, substantial law firm. I think is that correct? Yeah, Simpson Thatcher is one of the um, oldest law firms in the country. Uh, one of probably the largest now by headcount of lawyers is not very close to it. One of the most prestigious white shoe firms, to call it, uh, handling, um, you know, billion-dollar mergers and acquisitions. Very different world from Silicon Valley. You know, that was uh, um, ivory floors and uh, wooden desks and, and corner offices and um, handling. They, they worked with large private equity clients like KKR and Blackstone. Um, and I think it was quite an experience uh, going from uh, Cornell, and, and it felt very grown up at the time to, to step into an office. I think it was pretty young at that time, still 22, 23, and um, be able to participate in the professional workforce. Yes, <clears throat> yes. So as you reflect back on, on that experience at uh, Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett, what, what were sort of the one or two big takeaways or things that you learned from that experience? I think the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, work ethic. I think uh, nothing gets you uh, the, the right experience, like you know, working at an investment bank or working at a big law firm, and uh, you know, be, being able to meet deadlines, um, proceed with precision, and uh, multitask, 
and, and handle kind of a stressful environments. So that was that was fun. I think that was that was a good uh, first step into the professional environment. And when you made that decision to to go to a law firm, so one of the things that uh, my co-host Mike and I always kind of talk about is um, when you're when you're finished with your education, wherever that may be. Uh, for some people, it's earlier in life than for others. Uh, should you start your entrepreneurial endeavor right away, or should you go, you know, work at a larger organization and uh, learn some of the requisite skills that you may have not learned as part of your formal education um, and and make the mistakes, you know, at their expense, so to speak, mm-hmm. and then start off on your own business. So what are your thoughts on that? That's a very kind of interesting question. I have kind of differing thoughts on that. And it, I think it all depends on the opportunity in, in front of you. If you were, um, you know, Zuckerberg sitting at uh, Harvard and um, three of the chances start the social network that would take over i think you, you you know you go for that obvious opportunity um but uh, you know in, in in my case i um always look to the, the best opportunity available in in front of me and in certain cases that's you know that happens right away um but in certain cases it does um help um to to build a, um, a network more importantly it's a network of people and resources and ideas and learnings that you build throughout a career. I don't think I, you know, apart from, um, apart from just the pure work ethic, I don't think that being a corporate lawyer necessarily trained me for uh, a path towards entrepreneurship. Um, if I had uh, picked more deliberately, it might have been to go work at a, a tech company to build a, a network of fellow engineers and designers and uh, people connected in, in BC that uh, could, could accelerate the process. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to uh, link up with uh, Y Combinator pretty early on in my entrepreneurial career, and that helped fill in the gap and uh, kind of went with um, one that opportunity. Yeah. So let's talk about Y Combinator a little bit. So, they, you know, they, yeah. they're one of the big famous uh, – places and uh, talk to us about your yeah. experience sort of h- how you got in how you got introduced uh, what you learned there and stuff I first heard of Y Combinator through um, Paul Graham's uh, website and essays um, and that's how many people actually stumbled upon it uh, in the first time and became a regular reader of um, Hacker News which is their um, online and news site became that became a, a staple of my daily reading I, I do recall being in, in the law firm and, and you know reading up on the latest articles on entrepreneurship and the stories of uh, I think it was probably around Dropbox's era and, and other founders posting things um, and I, my it sort of led to uh, how I kind of got involved kind of more uh, how, how I jumped in was uh, was was also opportunistic. I think it was uh, in 2009 when there was the financial crisis hitting uh, Wall Street, and uh, uh, I was lucky enough to actually uh, take a. Was lucky enough to be able to give to get the opportunity to take a sabbatical um, for a year and explore opportunities, which naturally led themselves to entrepreneurship. Um, basically, crashed on a friend's couch in in San Mateo, which is. Uh, Right near Palo Alto, and um, and sort of started talking to everyone and anyone that I could uh, in that area. Um, through, I think that uh, ended up basically just applying. Uh, YC that back then was a bit smaller, um, and uh, I suppose I had impressed uh, Paul Graham and the team there enough with uh, my my drive towards building something. I, I don't think that uh, even to this day I, I'm not quite sure what exact what exact idea I pitched uh, initially um, but I think that they they liked what I wanted um, I, I they liked the drive that I they seem to have had back in the day yeah so clearly you know your motivation and your drive uh, and your curiosity and willingness to try new things has sort of been a theme <laughs> uh, through your right. life uh, you look at the things that you've done and um, do you think that's sort of a required characteristic or trait for entrepreneurs? 
I think there are different styles. I think I am uh, a bit of um, an, an opportunist. I mean, I started this company, um, got it through an exit, but you know, looking back, I'm not a transportation expert. I'm not a mobility expert. I've you know never been in the the field before. Um, but I saw uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a product oriented person. I saw a problem and I I figured out how to mobilize the resources to solve this. I think that. Um, there's also on the flip side, um, you know, a more focused oriented approach um, where someone can be become a really expert in a craft or, or um, for, for, which takes, you know, decades long of experience and, and focus. And uh, that in some cases can lead to uh, tremendous success as an entrepreneur as well. So there's different styles and, and different paths towards uh, being successful in this regard. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Ewan. And, you know, one of the things that has come up in, in previous episodes uh, that Mike and I have noticed is that for most successful entrepreneurs, they do have this characteristic or trait where they can recognize potential opportunities, they act on them, and then they make sure they have satisfied customers. So it's kind of those three things uh, have been a really common theme for the entrepreneurs that we have been spoken to. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's, that's the very definition of, uh, you know, spotting. I think most, most entrepreneurs deliver end up delivering uh, a product, and I guess entrepreneurs fall into categories. You either provide a product or a service, and in both cases, they fill a, a customer need. And um, I think that the uh, the not just the idea, but the the step of and the, taking the risks associated with with acting on an idea, and, uh, and sometimes, in, obviously, in in, uh, in most in some or not most cases, sometimes the, the things don't pan out. But uh, that's kind of the very definition of entrepreneurship, and and um, you know uh, that that I recognize, and I've done that multiple times in my in my life, you know and seeing an opportunity and, and, uh, and acting and, and jumping on it um, with sometimes minimal information. I think that sometimes just this, this kind of hunch and, and this idea that something could work. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you, you, you never have all the data or information that you'd like to have, um, but you got to act on, on what you have and, and sort of taking that yeah. first step. Because uh, once you take the first step, you're sort of forced to take a step after that. <laughs> And and it, and it, yeah. and and the sort of progression grows, and and you end up building something. So uh, yeah, I want to yeah. Go ahead. No, I was saying that that really reminds me of how I ended up uh, st- starting Spin. Actually, that you know, just kind of on on hunches and proceeding on uh, incomplete information, and um, really just going with what I you know, and. and uh, sometimes they just start compounding each other. I think that um, with uh, when 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 the opportunity is 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 right, you'll you'll start knowing it as different forces pull you in. Whether it's you know different partners wanted to come in, investors, customers, and it kind of snowballs in from from there. Yeah. So let's talk about spin for a little bit. So can you sure. can you let us can you kind of talk say a few words about where the initial idea for that came from, sort of, did you have a eureka moment? Uh, just sort of, you know, the very, very early early stages of your thought process there and sort of when you recognize yeah. the opportunity. That's a, this is a fun one. I, uh, it, it also stems, and most, like most businesses, it stems from a, a, a personal observation. And for me, I've, uh, I've always noticed any kind of inefficiencies in, in the, the world around me or things that I use on a frequent basis. And I live in San Francisco and I moved there for, for Y Combinator and, and, and doing a bunch of different uh, startups. Uh, at the time, I was uh, had just newly formed a small um, venture firm uh, and was, was investing in, in startup opportunities. I thought that was the best use of my, my skill set. And um, I was living in San Francisco and, and uh, I had lived in San Francisco pre-Uber and noticed uh, the, uh, the nightmare of trying to get a taxi back in the, that time. Um, Uber came along and, and for the most part solved that problem of getting around, um, but it still left this gap. And, and this gap was very evident uh, whenever I wanted to travel a very short uh, distance. 
and the distance being at like a mile or so or, or less. Um, you know, calling an Uber oftentimes meant waiting for four minutes, paying anywhere from uh, five to ten dollars, and being stuck in traffic. So that was that was a huge pain point, and it left me stuck in Soma, which um, doesn't have it. It's a it's, it's up and coming industrial esque neighborhood now, now being taken over by tech, but it's not the the most walkable places. So uh, I, I felt for it being very stuck. And, uh, and this, this, this feeling of getting stuck kind of uh, stayed with me. And, and, and one, uh, I was splitting time between China and San Francisco doing well while running and, and growing the venture fund and um, living in uh, Beijing one day outside my apartment. I noticed uh, a new bike share system that had just uh, popped up and um, it was these two companies that uh, started. One started by a, a pretty clever um, college grad from from China who had started on his campus. Uh, they had uh, devised this scheme of of putting uh, orange and yellow bicycles out on the streets that anyone could unlock. Um, at, at first, it was yeah, very simple mechanical locks uh, that were that users were supplied with a, a four digit code that can unlock. And um, the, the, the real genius behind the system was, um, I think we're all familiar, or most people are familiar now with, in the last few years with uh, station-based bike share systems that, uh, that require docking stations. New York City has a pretty successful program. London has one too, and, and most um, big cities in America have uh, tried this in the last few years. Uh, the issue with that, obviously, is that these, these bikes could only be or picked up and dropped off to certain fixed point locations, and you can never have enough of these locations in the city to make the trip worthwhile. Um, in China, the, the model that popped up was bikes that could be picked up and dropped off um, literally anywhere um, close to your doorstep, and it really changed the whole uh, face of the product. It made it incredibly useful, and I remember uh, there was a Starbucks that was close to my – was not super close. I mean, it was a, a healthy 20-minute walk away from my apartment. Um, that now turned into like a two-minute bike ride, and I was uh, remarked by how um, how simple, how elegant, how 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 brilliant this, this product and solution was. That I I knew that um, this was this was solving a problem that I personally had faced, that um, my friends had recognized, and that would um, be one that would um, resonate with with customers basically throughout the world. Uh, mobility is one of those nice. Um, industries where uh, it's, it's universally applicable. It's nothing inherent in one market or another. It's, everyone wants to get around. So um, with that, I think that provided me the spark and inspiration and, and um, stars really kind of lined up. I was uh, in a position with uh, access to a very modest amount of capital uh, from the venture uh, side and uh, had been in contact with a friend who had just left uh, Lyft. I was keeping in touch with uh, promising fellow entrepreneurs and basically put two and two together uh, and and really got going. It was quite a whirlwind at the end of uh, 2016, probably around Christmas time uh, when we started and um, really drew on all different aspects um, of my past experiences, including law, because I, I the the one uh, recognition that I made in, in adapting this, in thinking about adapting the system to the United States uh, where it was home, uh, I realized that users would certainly use that, that product, but um, I was more concerned about how cities would react to um, us operating on such a system on sidewalks and public rights of way. And um, having that uh, policy framework in mind, I realized that you know, as much of the work was, it was as much about uh, working with cities in, in the U.S. as, a, as it was about uh, working with uh, users. So I think that um, that was the, uh, the approach we took early on, and, and it's been proven to be the, the, the right way as, as, the city, as this program has now been uh, put into place uh, with proper permits in, in, most, uh, in a lot of U.S. cities. Yeah, so that, that's uh, interesting because it's one of these businesses that uh, when it pops up, it's not regulated. Uh, there, there isn't an existing sort of structure uh, that people know exactly how to deal with it. 
And uh, I can imagine that some places would embrace it, but maybe some places <clears throat> would resist. Uh, mm-hmm. So this notion of uh, working that out so it's not a uh, confrontational but more of a partnership between between SPIN and the city uh, was really critical. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk a little bit about your approach uh, uh, in that? Yeah, I think that I'm thinking back now. It's funny we stand today in 2019 and everyone knows about scooters and there we just had, you know, a big conference that just came back from South by Southwest actually where scooters took over the town and there were mayor's conferences on how people wanted to implement mass mobility. But you just rewind back to the end, the start of 2017 when we were just starting out, nobody had heard of this system in the U.S. Uh, and, and we were the first ones to, to bring it over. We um, did a demo two years ago at South by Southwest with a, a bunch of orange-colored bikes. It was super successful with users, and that got us kind of going to our next step. Um, it, it, the landscape there was much different. And operating a, a shared um, mobility service on, on city streets, whether bicycles or scooters, um, the, the legal framework prior to, to the, the latest um, the regulations being and permit systems being created um, left it, I mean, it, it was somewhere in between a, um, you know, uh, leaving uh, materials on blocking the rights of way to operating a hot dog stand, uh, like sidewalk commerce. Um, those two uh, sets of um, regulation applied to our, our business and no one knew quite what to, to make of it. And um, our initial foray was uh, trying to find the most understanding customer. And, and in our case, we had uh, two sets of customers, one cities and one users. And uh, at, you know, in doing our experiment at a little demo at, at the, uh, in Austin during South by in 2017. It was it was quite a hit of users, but then we had to go figure out how to, to sell this idea to cities. And uh, again, a very opportune moment happened for us in July in, in Seattle. Uh, in, in the summer, uh, Seattle had a, an old system. A, a, it was called Pronto, a, a station-based bike share system. And they actually just ran out of funds. These systems didn't enjoy incredible usage and, and had to be subsidized by, by cities. And uh, they had just actually run out of funds and had to dismantle the, the, the system. And so we, we stepped in and made a pitch to um, the city council members. And we found quite a, a warm reception from the city council, um, given that Seattle is a, is a, is a bike-friendly town. Um, our, uh, we, we, we found the, the city council member who, um, you know, was the, the, a passionate advocate of cycling. Uh, so since started with uh, regular bikes and same model as our scooters today, where we put them on the streets and unlock, but we started with regular bicycles. So, um, we, we, uh, we found the council member who, you know, had a bike back in his office and was an advocate for, for more bikes on the street. And it was, it was, uh, it wasn't that hard of a sell, um, to, 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 to tell him, to tell him an idea that, uh, we would have, uh, very soon, uh, fleets of, of a few thousand bikes on the street that anyone could use, uh, that was affordable, provided a clean mode of transportation and would, would, um, really power the city to, um, improve on its transportation system. So let me ask you a question. As you were as you were going through that, it was uh, making me think about your experience at the at the law firm. How did how did that experience mm-hmm. help you in this process? Uh, it certainly did. I mean, having a and, and sometimes I, I I do take it for granted, um, knowing the ins and outs of uh, um, how permit making is made. You know, I had a, took courses in administrative law, obviously. Um, how local governments kind of work, um, how how you interpret it, the different uh, regulations, how you try to craft um, uh, um, new regulations that would permit you to do such things and, and speak the language of legislative um, uh, folks in, in the legislative branch. So I think that uh, it, it also gave us a li- little more authority, I think, that um, back in the 
back in that time, I think it was just three of us. So um, having that uh, that background certainly made us a bit, um, you know, a tiny, tiny bit more credible when when speaking to um, uh, folks in the city who took a chance on us and the whole system, and ultimately were rewarded because they helped birth a very, very awesome new industry. Right. Right. Excellent. And uh, spin. Uh, if I think, if I remember correctly, uh, this past fall or November or something like that got acquired by Ford. That's correct. Uh, we are now Ford's uh, micro mobility unit, and uh, you know that was uh, quite a, a crazy ride. If I count, I think it was around like eighteen months or so from when we you know rolled out our basically got started with our product to uh, being acquired by Ford, and it was quite the, the crazy eighteen months. But it was. Uh, unbelievable journey, and, and uh, we've now found a, a, an incredible partner uh, with Ford and their Smart Mobility Group, uh, and are, are super excited to be now a part of this uh, this whole family. And uh, at the same time, uh, we very much are still a startup. Um, we've we've quadrupled the headcount since the acquisition, and are, uh, are are embarking on a pretty ambitious plan to roll out in, in dozens of U.S cities across the next year. So can you talk a little bit about how the initial uh, contact with Ford happened? Did they knock on your door? Did you knock on their door? Sort of talk us through that, because I think entrepreneurs are sort of interested in that, you know, so how does how does this part of the process work? For us, um, looking back, we have to kind of retrace how this went, because everything happened in a, in a, in a whirlwind. Um, in, in our case, it was uh, reaching out to different uh, OEMs um, to, for 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 business development relationships. So we had a we had a business development uh, rep on our team who who started conversations, and sometimes you never know um, where they might lead. Uh, in in our case, it uh, it turned out that uh, Ford Smart Mobility Group was looking uh, was was actively uh, unbeknownst to us, obviously. You know, looking to get into the space and, and looking for the right partner, and we found that uh, that synergy. And the and the reason we found that synergy was because of our our partnership oriented approach. Um, this uh, Ford is built, you know, is classically known as a, their their goal is to build the, the world's most trusted company. And um, in our industry, there have been more aggressive players that have um, chosen growth for the sake of growth, and then have oftentimes been at odds with cities. On the other hand, we've been very cooperative and, and helped lead the way in, in, in creating these permit systems. And um, that, that made a, a perfect match for us. And then uh, I think the whole thing kind of went um, very quickly. I think that um, it was, I, a lot of it was actually sparked by, uh, perhaps inadvertently by, by competition popping up in Detroit and um, giving uh, senior members of the, the, the Ford team a first-hand look at, at uh, the possibilities of micromobility and, and real problems that they were solving. And they, they basically realized that this was a segment that they, they needed to understand more and, and wanted to um, really invest in. Oh, excellent. I think one of, the, one of the gems in what you said is that it started with a business development relationship, and it really wasn't you guys knocking on the door yep. saying, hey, you want to buy us. Uh, so right. oftentimes it's that relationship. It's a, it's a different type of relationship that then leads to this sort of aha. Wouldn't it be nice to you know maybe get more married than mm-hmm. and, and become one team than uh, to be separate? So that's great. Yeah, it's like it goes from like a knowing someone, and then uh, in in our case, there was a convergence of two different things, uh, and and obviously in, in, a, in a complex. Um, a transaction like this, it takes um, people from all different parts of the, the, the organization to get buy-in, and um, you know it, it oftentimes starts from one one single relationship, and somewhere else in the organization, maybe higher up, saying, "Hey, we need to get in the space. Do you guys know anyone you know credible or like that you want to work with?" Another guy speaks up, and "Hey, I'm working with these guys already. How about you know you put two and two together?" And so it's oftentimes you know keeping that network. Um, and it's almost like um, building a, a personal um, a network. You can think about networking for your company. Um, you know, in, in, in job hunting or recruiting or building a startup, 
um, you have all these loose relationships um, that, that end up working out for you. And I guess the same sometimes applies for uh, your, your business and companies. Well, you, you never know where those might lead. Yeah, excellent. So I want to switch gears a little bit and, and uh, talk a little about venture capital. So you've done several yeah. startups. Um, they've been backed by, by VCs. And yeah. can you talk about um, that relationship, uh, what you look for in a, par- in a venture partner or an investment partner, and what sort of the value adds have been in those relationships? I think that uh, we've worked with different types of uh, venture firms and uh, ranging from my very first encounter uh, with venture, which was in 2010, um, had the opportunity to work with uh, really awesome seed stage uh, venture firms, including um, first round capital, who uh, ended up with a with a mega hit in Uber, having seed uh, having participated in the seed and Series A of that company. Um, so I think that uh, they, they um, in terms of what I ended up. Uh, looking for, oftentimes it was the people that were ready to step up and finance the business, to be honest. I think that um, in, in you're always kind of towing the line as an entrepreneur between um, recognizing an opportunity and waiting for people who, who can provide the financing in order to start believing in, in you as well. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in, in my, in my in my cases, I don't think I I, I looked for people who were ready to step up and, and fund the business, and who I thought could uh, I could get along well with, and who trusted me to, to run and grow the company. Um, so, uh, I think that um, in, in my circumstance, I, I don't think I was always kind of flooded with uh, with offers. I found enough and the right ones to come along and back the business at the right time. Yes. Yes. The uh, one of the things you said there I thought was interesting in that uh, a, a company or a team or a partner that you felt you could work with. Um, talk mm-hmm. about the importance of that relationship between the founder of a company and and let's say the, you know, the the investing partner from a venture fund. I think that's that's pretty huge. I think that you um, aside from being I think that uh, Aside from being a capital partner, uh, venture investors oftentimes very influential in the company as well, and it's almost like uh, making an important hire. Uh, that's that's how one should really look at bringing on an investor in in the company, uh, especially an, an active investor like a venture capital firm. And I think that it gets more and more serious down the line as they start taking up. Um, uh, board seats and on, on the Series A and Series B rounds, and they oftentimes can dictate the um, uh, the outcome of a company. And most of the times, they're they're right in line. Sometimes uh, the interests kind of diverge, and it's important to to figure out um, what what type uh, you know what type of business partner you want to do you want to work with, and make sure that the goals are aligned. If um, the, the goal is to sell a company within the first few years that's that's one type of outcome and uh, the goal is to potentially build a, a company that can be the next google or or facebook that's another type of um, uh, outcome and uh, and then knowing what i think uh, also knowing what kind of what resources a particular investor might bring is, is important uh, what relationships they might want to bring along with them yeah, excellent, excellent. Those are I, I know a lot of our listeners are, you know, curious to the whole uh, venture capital uh, game and relationship, mm-hmm. uh, however you want to describe it, and sort of, you know, one of the things one of the things that uh, I I I was part of a of a venture fund a co-founder one of three partners who we started a fund, and that's still mm-hmm. around, still existing. I'm I'm no longer a partner there, and. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that people don't realize is that even as a small little sub one hundred million dollar fund, we would look at three to four hundred business plans a year, and only invest in five or six. And yeah. so, venture capital gets a lot of uh, press and a, and a lot of sort of uh, um, fame and fortune. 
but it's really a, a not the only way to fund your business, not the only way to grow your business. And yeah. uh, but it gets a lot of press, so people often think, "Oh, I, I got to go get venture capital. I got to go get venture capital." So, where I'm leading to with this is, what was sort of your thought process? with should I get venture capital? Should I not get venture capital? Should I look at different ways of capitalizing my business? Um, or did you just know from the start, hey, I want to do this uh, you know, with a VC partner? When, I mean, uh, for, for Spin especially, I think I had been in, uh, in, in startups and tech long enough to realize the characteristics of a good venture fundable business. And uh, oftentimes, I, I think those. Uh, I think that's a that's a good a reality check to, to ask yourself. And, and not all um, businesses are suited for venture capital. Not to say that all businesses are not good businesses. They're great businesses that that are are not uh, suitable for uh, venture capital. Um, and I think the early on in my career, I think in, in when I first encountered YC, I, I did have that. Um, you know, luckily enough, I you know I had some early exposure to getting venture funded and, and learned what, um, what, what makes a good uh, fundable company. And when I was thinking about when obviously was, was starting spin, it, uh, it, it felt extremely like a, uh, a venture fundable business in that there were high upfront costs, um, namely the, the hardware and equipment. We you know, buying uh, bicycles and scooters require a huge capital investment upfront. Um, on a speculative market, but one that showed tremendous promise and was intuitively very exciting and uh, had huge scale. Uh, and those things um, are, you know, as, as you probably recognize from, from your own experience, uh, you know, really key elements of an exciting venture fundable business. And so uh, that was, um, I didn't necessarily set out to, to, to start the next venture funded company, uh, but when, when recognizing it and, and uh, crafting this opportunity, it was, it was quite obvious that the, the right thing to do um, was to try to achieve as, as much scale as possible quickly. And uh, it turns out it was quite right. I mean, um, between my competitors and, and us, um, I, I believe we're in the most, uh, the fastest growing um, tech industry or, or, you know, uh, ever, I think, outpacing, uh, judging just by company valuations alone, uh, outpacing delivery, outpacing uh, ride share, and 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 others it's kind of uh it's it's been quite quite a ride yeah so you brought some excellent points there of, of thinking about what are the characteristics for a venture backable business and making sure your own business uh meets meets those sort of characteristics um that is that is really important uh, now as you you know you've uh accomplished a lot of stuff um in 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 your life here and one of the things I always like to ask folks is if you reflect back, what were some of the big key decision points that you made that that have uh, that you think have helped you get to where you are today? I think that um, well, dropping out of the law firm, uh, taking that opportunity, and uh, jumping on on top of that sabbatical opportunity and and crashing on a friend's couch in, in San Mateo. Um, and maybe not as much as what I did, but you know, what, what kind of changed the trajectory of my own entrepreneurship career was, um, was the help that I got from my, my, my friend network uh, through Y Combinator and the mentors that I, I, I met there um, really shaped my, uh, um, you know, who, the the my my thinking and uh, have become some of my closest friends and investors. Um, actually, Spin was uh, was funded um, by a group of my my YC peers, uh, at least on the on the seed round. It was mm -hmm. uh, it was a bunch of friends that I got together. Uh, so not only did they uh, provide kind of good friendship over the years, they were ready to jump in with capital support uh, when I was ready to get when I when I stumbled upon this this idea yeah uh so you and i we've been going uh for oh, oh 47 minutes or so so i want to start wrapping yep. this up um what are 
you have maybe one or two or three words of uh, advice or lessons learned for uh, our audience uh, out there? Yeah, I think that um, for being an entrepreneur, I think that uh, one of the most important things is to really keep an eye out for, for true product market fit. Uh, and that's between your, your mainly between your, your customers and your product. And it's unmistakable uh, once you once you see it. It's hard to describe, um, but but when when you do see it, things take off in a very very fast way. So um, there might be different, you know. It, again, as I mentioned earlier, there are different styles of entrepreneurship. Um, but for for someone who's uh, who styles more of an, an opportunist, my like like myself, I think that uh, I tended to be on a on a very hawkish lookout for those types of things. And um, starting up and starting um, starting businesses around those types of opportunities are is often quite powerful just because of the effects that come along with it. Excellent, excellent words of advice. So, what's next for Ewan? We are still growing. Uh, we've been in almost busier after uh, the the Ford acquisition. Now, growing as part of um, part of this large company. Um, we, we're uh, coming up with a, a new scooter designs, uh, working on launching new cities, um, and, and really growing the team. And it's been it's been quite crazy. I mean, I've, I've never grown a team this big before. Um, and uh, really building the future of mobility under this group is, is quite a really exciting challenge over the next few years. Oh, excellent. That sounds like a... Uh, a fun thing to do uh, and one that will certainly mm-hmm. keep you busy and uh, I'm sure invigorated. Ewan, it's been a real pleasure yeah. uh, speaking with you. Um, I think that uh, you're just a great inspiration to our listeners and I'm sure um, a lot of people will enjoy this. Uh, is there anything yeah. that uh, I should have asked you or we should have talked about that uh, I didn't? I think you've covered uh, quite a lot. No, I think that was, that was great. Okay. Well, great. Thanks again, Ewan. And uh, signing off from here, uh, thanks, folks. And uh, we'll see you at our next episode. Wow, Bela, that was great. Where to start? I learned a lot from the conversation with Ewan. What did you think were the most important points? So one of the things that really jumped out at me, uh, and being a former VC, I I, kind of rang my bell a little bit in a good way. Uh, when he said uh, we were talking about VC investing, and he said I look at it as the VC is investing in my company, but I'm hiring them. So I I really take a deep look and a deep dive into the VC firm and try to understand what they're offering because money's a commodity. You can get that in a bunch of different places, but I really liked his notion of I'm hiring these people. I'm selling them a large portion of my company, and their mission is to help guide me and to help grow this business so at some point in the future, uh, we're going to have an exit. So I thought that was one thing that was really stuck out at me. The other thing that I wanted to talk about quickly is it's this recurring theme we've heard over and over again from many of our guests. It's the internship. Here, he called it a sabbatical, right? He took a sabbatical from his law firm practice. Uh, for a year. And that's when he moved out west to what I call the epicenter of uh, entrepreneurial activity, right? The Bay Area, the Silicon Valley. And uh, that's when his sort of real entrepreneur, his formal entrepreneurship career really started. So I thought those were two big things. Again, this notion of an internship and not really knowing where it's going to lead to. But if you if you take it, they almost always lead to something good. Bela, you know what's really interesting? You just used HR metaphors for two really important um, aspects of kind of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial career. And I think HR often gets a little bit disrespected uh, amongst all the business functions, and maybe that's for a good reason or not. I'm married to a, an HR professor, so I'm, I, I, you know, before people jump all over me, just know that I have been sleeping with an HR professor for the last 25 plus years. Oh, and Mike, let's let's just uh, tell people what HR is because maybe not everyone knows what that oh, is. Oh, thank you. Human resources, sometimes called HRM, human resource management, 
and still in Germany, oftentimes refer- referred to as personnel management. But that term's kind of out of favor in the U.S. Thank you for reminding me of that. But, okay, so HR metaphors, right? I mean, really, when you're hiring a, a, a VC, that really is going through a selection process, right? Developing criteria, interviewing, and using different tools to find out whether it's going to be a good fit, Right? I think that's a really cool point. And then when you talk about sabbatical as internship, again, we're really looking at this idea of de- employee development and career development and growth. Um, and now we're really looking to these two important aspects of entrepreneurship as really having these analogs to human resource management. So I think that's kind of a cool takeaway. Yeah, excellent point, Mike. The other thing I, I want to uh, bring up is here again, a common theme we've heard from many of our guests uh, this op- this sort of opportunity recognition. Ewan talked about, you know, he's an observer. He watches things. He looks for the inefficiencies in in various different parts of our life. And then he, he views those as sort of opportunities. And this notion of, of the, the spin fitting between Uber and walking, it's that part between Uber uh, and, and walking. And the other thing I thought was really good was his notion of realizing that this is sort of a new business, but it's in the city, you're using city sidewalks, you're, you're doing things, and I need to figure out how to partner with the cities and the, and the municipalities and be on their side because we've all heard of some of the challenges that Uber and Lyft have had at various, in various uh, municipalities. And Ewan said, look, I got to figure out how to be their friend and make this a partnership because they're, they're going to want it uh, and I need them on my side. So I thought those were two big takeaways. Yeah. They need you right. as much as you need them. Exactly. Take out that adversarial relationship from the beginning. It's going to go much better because there's no standards, right? This isn't a common theme that entrepreneurs face. Now, in, in when you were a medical device guy – there was all kinds of standards and rules in place, right? In this world of micro, I love the word micro mobility that, that you and used, but in this micro mobility world, there were no, there are no rules and standards yet. And that's why these conflicts have arisen um, in, in so many, in so many localities. So I thought that was a really cool corollary or that's not the right word, but this a uh, 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 comparison to kind of some of the innovation that you've done. Um, that in this in this area where there's no standards, it makes it a lot harder. And that's where these relationships are so much more important. Yeah, uh, lots of times when you come up with new technology, uh, the regulators, uh, I'll call them, don't know how to handle it. I mean, we had a little bit of that when, when we started the medical device company. We were doing robotic surgery, and this is in the early 90s, and the FDA didn't know quite what to do with it. Um, so So you had to partner with them and, and together you help understand and, and you, you, you do what's best uh, in that case for the patient. Uh, the other thing I thought that was, was sort of neat is when he talked about networking, you know, we always think about networking as a, a thing that we're doing for ourselves in a personal nature. And Ewan really talked about it as when you're an entrepreneur, you're actually networking for your company and you're, you're helping to build the company's brand and position. And I thought that was another excellent insight. Yeah, I'd never thought of it that way before, Bela. And I love that, that when we teach college students how to network so that they can get a job, it's actually a skill. Yes, it helps you get a job, but it's actually a skill for building your organization and being a better entrepreneur, right? Yeah, I agree. Love it. All right, I'm going to use that right away and, and, uh, and, and, and give you in full credit. Um, but I think that's a really cool lesson, that it's not just so you get a job, it's so that you open doors for your organization. I, I agree. And, uh, you know, I would say, Mike, uh, in every one of these podcasts that we've done, there's been one or two kind of golden nuggets that I, I have filed away. And I have said, you know what, I'm going to use that in one of my classes or in a workshop or just for life. Uh, uh, and uh, I think that's one of the great things that I've enjoyed about doing these. Uh, this one went pretty long. Uh, so what do you say we wrap this up, Mike? I think it's a great idea. I think uh, we're really happy that uh, you, our listeners, joined us in our podcasting adventure for this week. And we hope that you found the last hour or so interesting and thought-provoking like Bela and I did. Uh, as usual, we have two small requests 
First, if you have questions about what we've just discussed, if you have suggestions about topics or potential guests, please do uh, get in touch with us. We check our email and we answer our email. The best way to get a hold of us is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And, of course, if you like what we're doing here, please hit subscribe or like on your podcast app app, or even be radical and consider writing us a quick review. If you know other people that might find this interesting, please share us with them. Hey, that's it for this week uh, from here in beautiful downtown Schenectady, New York. Thanks for spending time with us. Uh, We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. Hey, Mike, see you next week. Thanks, Bela. Tschüss from Münster, Germany. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.